The next case, presented by Dr. Isaac Levy, is a woman who was initially diagnosed in 2001 while being premenopausal at age 51. This is a woman who was diagnosed with having two tumors in her left breast, 1.7 and 1.2 centimeters respectively, both well differentiated. She had negative axillary nodes, but had positive margins at the time of lumpectomy. The tumors were reported as ERPR positive, key 67 5%, and HER2 negative by Hercept. She subsequently underwent a left-modified simple mastectomy, had no residual invasive cancer and uninvolved margins. She received four cycles of AC. This was back in September of 2001. And then subsequently was started on adjuvant tamoxifen and completed five years of that back in October of 2006. And then she got the AC. Did she continue to menstruate? She continued to menstruate, and I think during the early part of her endocrine therapy, she started losing her menses completely. And the issue then, you know, after completing therapy, then I really wasn't seeing her that regularly. She had traveled. She was gone for significant periods of time. How did she do on the tamoxifen? She did very well. Both when she was menstruating and non-menstruating, no major problems? No major problems. She tolerated it well, otherwise was doing well, remained fairly active, good performance status. So when she got to the five-year point, did you have a discussion about what to do, or she was sort of traveling, you kind of lost her? Yeah, at that point, I think she just, she needed a break from doctors and oncology-related issues, and so she traveled, and a couple of times that we tried setting up appointments we couldn't connect, and I think she missed one or two appointments. So some time went by you know, before I actually got to see her again. And then the issue is, or one of the issues is, what to do, if anything, at this point in terms of putting her on an AI. About how long ago did you see her the last time did you see her? It's been about a year, I think. So she come back at all? She came back once and was about to travel again. And so we had a brief discussion about it. And she was really, I don't want to say standoffish, but she was reluctant to really doing anything else at that point. And so I have called her since then. I've left messages, and we actually spoke a couple of times about revisiting this, doing a bone density and considering AI therapy. And and that's where we are. You know, so, Rowan, we wanted to use this as an example of long-term management of the premenopausal patient, particularly one who becomes postmenopausal, that there's so much controversy about. Now, in this situation now, it's been two years since she finished her adjuvant tamoxifen. The question is, would you consider starting an AI this far after that? I guess one question is, her age now is 56? She's now 58. 58, okay, yeah. So it's pretty easy to recommend starting an AI here. She's got two tumors. It's been shown that the two tumors put her at higher risk, even trying to make some kind of judgment about how they represent. So this would be a higher-risk patient with this ER-positive, PR-positive, one who will have majority of her recurrences still remain to occur after this six- or seven-year period. And in MA-17, where they re-randomized the patients, there was a considerable period of time and still showed a benefit. So I think it's reasonable that she can be offered an AI. Now, the question is, my experience, when MA-17 first came out, we waited till the women to come in for their normal appointments. And if we had anybody that was more than a year after the completing of therapy, I would tell them about the data, and everybody would say, sounds like this patient, I'm through with my breast cancer. We had a deal, 
and I fulfilled everything, and I liked coming here, seeing you, talking to you. You know, it's a little, parking's a little difficult, but I'm done with my breast cancer. And I couldn't convince anyone after a year's gap to take it. And so that gets into the way I strategize now for when I initiate patients, because I tell them the duration is going to be more than five years, but that's a separate question. So it would be easy to offer an AI for me to this patient. I doubt that this patient... She's giving you multiple signals that she's done with her breast cancer and doesn't want to hear about more therapy or more risk. Suppose she'd been four years out. Would you still be open to offering it? Yeah, I mean, it just depends on the kind of balance. I think it reminds me of the Herceptin story. When Herceptin first came out, remember we said, oh, it was six months because that was the way we kind of understood one of the trials had been done. And then when we see it working and working, especially in neoadjuvant, these big responses, and then we'd see a few patients who didn't get it recur, then the interval became longer and longer. And so I think it's the same thing. Four years is okay. I don't know what's too long. Steve, what about the issue of the patient who's had a delay since they've completed tamoxifen? Sure. And I think that the evidence is that going back in after some gap in treatment and offering late letrozole, and probably would be very similar for Romacin because that was the NSABP B33 trial, there's benefit. You can reduce the annual risk of recurrence. Your annual risk of recurrence is somewhere 2%, maybe 3%. This is sort of, you know, she's got two cancers, but the nodes were negative. But it is 2 or 3% per year year out to year 15. And so you probably can reduce her risk. But I agree with Rowan because I think these kind of patients have sort of already given a signal they're done with this. It wasn't part of the plan and so on. There are a couple that I've managed to talk into. Then there are others that I go through the spiel every time they come in every year and they're just not going to take any further treatment. But I had a patient not too long ago and she had been very young and premenopause got the tamoxifen, but really high risk breast cancer, lots of positive nodes. And she came in, I'm looking back through the chart, and I think now she's suddenly postmenopause, been off all treatment for several years, but you know, she had 10 nodes or something like that, and I had, didn't have her on anything. So that was kind of my error to do that, and I offered it to her, and she took it. So I think once she knew that, you know, the patients with positive nodes still have a higher annual risk of recurrence. This woman wanted to do everything, so she took it. So it's worth a try, and you do your best, and I think the data sort of support coming back in even after some gap in time. Rowan? If this patient was 45 to begin with, say, and is 50 now, then I really wouldn't give her just an aromatase inhibitor. We don't know, and I think this is one of the problems we saw maybe with the ABCSG12 trial, maybe we're going to see it in soft and text, this is a concern, is that there isn't great evidence that GnRH analogs will suppress estrogen adequately for a long period of time to get to postmenopausal levels. The one signal we have is from Carlson's data, 32 patients with premenopausal treated with GnRH analogs and anastrozole, and three out of the 32 had estradiol levels within the premenopausal range within one year at various time points. We're not participating, but some physicians that we round with are participating in the text trial. And basically, this woman has been getting estradiol levels, and we've had a number of people who had premenopausal estradiol levels. I told her that she has to stop the therapy. So, and maybe that's the signal we're getting from ABCSG12 with no difference for tamoxifen and anastrozole added on to GnRH analogs, is that it may not be adequate to suppress. Now, going we're back to your... Talk, fr- that's the Austrian study that was just presented at ASCO, and we're going to pick your brain yep. on that one also. But continue. Yeah, so I think the point I'm getting at is that estradiol 
and FSH, LH levels do not signature menopausal status. So menopausal status is a post hoc definition, which is one year of no menstruation with nothing intervening which could cause it. So if you took a 45-year-old menstruating woman, gave her AC and tamoxifen, and then at 50 she hadn't menstruated for two years, she's not postmenopausal by definition. It becomes almost impossible to define whether they are postmenopausal or not. The estradiol tells you what's happening today. You could end up becoming pregnant or beginning menstruation at some time in the future. So it becomes a very tricky situation to try to know how to deal with that issue. Now, Steve, this patient became postmenopausal. There are people who get to their fifth year tamoxifen and still are having regular menstrual periods, usually younger women. What about the possibility of extending beyond five years? Richard Pito presented some data at San Antonio. Richard Gray presented some at ASCO. That was the ATLAS and the ADAM studies. What was your take on that? And for practical purposes, are there any situations where you might go beyond five years with tamoxifen? Yeah, it's actually been my routine practice to do at least 10 years of tamoxifen in higher risk patients. And that definition would vary among those in the room, but for me, it was somebody with positive nodes. So I routinely have done that. I think if you listen to Pito's presentation on Atlas and Richard Gray on Adam, they then had to do a meta-analysis of their own analyses and then suggest that longer was better. There's also this old French trial, the TAM-01 trial, that changed about 20 times in 20 years, but basically it was sort of three years versus an average of 10 to 13 years. And longer was better, particularly for node-positive patients that were ER-positive. So I think that the decision was made years ago with sort of the NCI cooperative groups that five years would be it. It was, you know, we did a vote around the table. That's how it came. It wasn't based on studies. The B14 trial, which was a node-negative trial, much lower-risk patients, was inadequately powered. And one point suggested there might be an adverse outcome for longer treatment rather than a benefit. So everyone got very nervous, and so the recommendation was stop at five years. But it was really never tested. So Atlas and Adam eventually will be important studies. They're kind of consistent with the French data. And certainly not everybody develops resistance to tamoxifen, and I would generally do that. So when in doubt in this kind of situation, if the patient's higher risk, say positive nodes, I would just continue tamoxifen until you're pretty sure they're postmenopausal. And I agree with Rowan. It's very hard to tell in some of these patients. I want to get your take on the zolindronate part of that Austrian study. Before I do, I'm just kind of curious how many people, including the faculty, are putting patients on either the B42 extension study or the MA17. And what happens when you sit down with people and talk to them about randomizing between continuing an AI or not? Rowan, we've seen an interesting trend in our patterns of care studies, which is initially when we started to ask people about continuing an AI off study, most people, almost everybody said no. And now in the last two, three years, we're seeing a lot of people who are doing this, particularly in node-positive patients off-study. And it seems like a lot of the reasoning is more awareness of what you said, which was the risk of recurrence, that people didn't realize how high the risk was. What do we know about the fraction of women who sort of glide through five years of an AI without any major problems? Well, it's interesting. In all the randomized trials comparing tamoxifen to AIs, all of them, the dropouts in the clinical trials are greater on tamoxifen than on the AIs, every trial. And that's a little different situation where you really end up having these research associates really working with the people, trying to get them to stay on. In clinical practice, oncologists generally say the AIs are tough, tamoxifen isn't. I think that's because we're just missing the tamoxifen dropouts. All the tamoxifen dropouts are GYN issues, and I think the women get bleeding, go to see a gynecologist, they do an endometrial aspiration biopsy, it hurts. The gynecologist will tell them, if you go back on tamoxifen or go back to that doctor, you're going to get 
get more of this. We just don't see them. And I think that's an interesting fact. So I think it's probably just as true of tamoxifen, except they're not in our office at year five complaining. They're already gone. And I agree that there is a substantial number, maybe 40% of women, 30 to 40% of women have a fair amount of arthralgia difficulties. And depending on sexual activity, depends on how much the vaginal dryness bothers the women. In my experience, about 10% have real problems with arthralgias. And of those, then I can probably get maybe about half of them to stay on the medication. Steve, what about the issue of switching AIs in patients who are having problems with arthralgias, et cetera? Do you think there's any value in that, or is it pretty much a class effect? I think there is some value in that. I don't know if it's the power of suggestion, but I think there's some value in it. Exomestane or Romacin seems to have a little less joint symptoms associated with it. So I have a number of patients who couldn't tolerate letrozole or anastrozole and take them off, usually leave them off for a month. The patients get joint pain, it comes on pretty quick. If somebody gets joint pain four years later, it's something else, arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or something. But if they get it fairly early on and they go off, it usually gets better. And then you can institute the other class of drugs, so the steroidal, and I would use aromas. And so a lot of times I can do that. But I've had a couple of patients who can't tolerate any of them. And then you've got four drugs, including tamoxifen, and I ask them to take one of the four drugs. So they've got, just pick the one that they think they can tolerate the best. The other issue is I have kind of unusual practice because I see now a lot of patients, long-term follow-up, very high risk that are now year 12, year 13. I've got them on an AI. And yesterday I had two patients. They're both about the same risk, a couple positive nodes. And I know the annual risk of recurrence is still for node positive disease, 4% per year out to year 15. So one woman was very comfortable stopping. She's had five years of an AI after maybe seven years of tamoxifen. The other woman absolutely adamant that she did not want to stop. And I can't really argue her out of it because I know the risk is ongoing. So that's a dilemma. We certainly need MA17 re-randomization data, but these patients are moving through this process now and we don't have the data. The Austrian study. Rowan, are you bringing this up to your patients or are you considering using it off study if you can get paid for? Yeah, I mean, we're in public hospital settings, so the cost issue is gone for us, at least operationally. So, yes, I'm bringing this up now. And as I weigh the evidence, I mean, there's a lot of evidence. It just isn't just the ABCSG12 data, which is that randomized data that you already discussed, but we've also seen the ZFAST, ZOFAST data where they looked at giving early zoledonic acid in every six-month schedule or waiting, and where they had 30 versus 48 recurrences in the two trials. Unplanned, you know, multiple looks, but that's the same signal. You have two positive quadrinate studies, including Trevor Powell's, which was pre- and post-menopausal, got chemotherapy, some of the patients, had a survival benefit. The first trial had a survival benefit as well in the New England Journal. Sarto's trial that's put everybody off the case, which had a trend towards a survival detriment for 400 patients with a quadrinate trial, had an imbalance in randomization where they were treating postmenopausal patients, everybody with hormonal therapy, and there were 50% more people who were hormone receptor negative in the quadrinate arm. So it's published that way, discredited trial. So basically you got one, and you, so you really end up having five positive studies. But if I was running a protocol, I'd probably want to wait because the Azure study, which is fully powered for Zomita's effect on recurrence, will be reporting later this year. Which uh, study is this? This is Azure. Azure. So it's 3,000 patients looking with the every month schedule for a while, then less frequent, and then kind of B34 with uh, multiple thousands of patients. Which that's NSABP. NSABP is so that's B34. not reported yet. Not reported yet with multiple patients. So is, bottom is line is yep. who are you open to? Are you just going to present it to a premenopausal ER positive who's gotten hormone therapy alone or everybody, all ER positive? 
Who? No, I think with the Trevor Powell study and with ZFAS, Zofast, I don't think there's any reason to restrict it to premenopausal. And what it is is just one way to look at it. You can wait for Azure, which will be six months. That's a reasonable thing. The way I look at it, you give one four milligram shot of a drug that's approved for osteoporosis prevention and therapy and just covering yourself for six months. So ER the, negative? Well, ER, I haven't been given it to ER. Let's see. It hasn't come up to ER negative yet, so I haven't thought about it. But I think the way I'm thinking about it now is I will discuss it with the patients that it's equivalent of giving one osteoporosis drug shot, and then we'll find out in six months whether we should continue doing this. So have you actually treated anybody since ASCO? Yes. Yeah. Steve, what's your practical take? I actually thought it was a very dramatic practice-altering presentation and suspected for some time that sort of one of the next advances would be the bisphosphonates preventing bone metastases. I didn't really think about them preventing other types of metastases, but it was very dramatic, and there was no difference between an astrazole and tamoxifen in that setting, maybe because they're all getting ovarian suppression, but what was impressive was the effect of zoledronic acid on metastases. So I think it's practice-altering. I think the problem is trying to get insurance companies to pay for it now. And I think that's the problem. At least you're not dealing with Medicare because this would never get covered under Medicare. So a premenopausal patient, ER positive, who can pay for it or whatever, cost is not an issue, you're going to use it? Yeah, I would use it. I think it's a pretty low toxicity Postmenopausal drug. ER positive. I would use it if I can get it paid for. ER I think negative. Whether the study was done ER positive, we don't know about ER negative yet. There is a lot of other data sets coming, but in the aggregate, the data is there. It's interesting. Peter Ravden described the effect as trastuzumabian. I think that was the word. And it's really interesting when you think about it. 35% reduction in recurrence rate, potentially in all patients, or 80%. Trastuzumab, 50% reduction in 20% of the patients. If this really plays out, it's... It it's, changes everything. I think a lot of people have just missed that. I mean, basically, this is not a taxane. You know, this is not adromycin. I mean, this is better than those things in a potential sense. So I think it really is. And the other way it's going to change things is, does that mean that probably if after Azure reports and all the protocols are going to have to come in the shop and put on the bisphosphonate and increase their sample size? right? And then the 3,000 patient trials are going to go away. They're going to be 4,000 patient trials. It's going to be harder and harder to get at the questions, which will be great for our patients. But I think this is going to be something that's going to be added to all the protocols after Azure reports. But Azure is positive. All the protocols are going to have to come in and give it. The other issue, though, is that the New York Times and other great authorities have just scared the heck out of women about taking bisphosphonates. Doesn't matter whether I have so many patients that just stop taking their actinel, Fosamax, and so on. And this is a bisphosphonate. They're going to be warned about it. Somebody yesterday again ONG? needs some dental implants, so the dentist took her off this a year ago in preparation for dental implants. Of course, the bisphosphonates are there forever. They don't really go away, and there's no length of time you can take people off safely to do this, but somehow the penetrance among dentists and oral surgeons is close to 100%, and they all think everybody gets this, and it's a very common problem. It's really a pretty rare problem, and certainly in the adjuvant setting, this has not been observed. It wasn't observed in the Austrian trial. So you got that barrier to kind of overcome with You're talking about patients. ONJ specifically, yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah. And there were zero cases in There the were zero Austrian. cases. They did thousands of shots, zero cases, but women are really frightened of this. Do you? I interviewed Robert Marks, who was one of the oral surgeons who discovered ONJ, and he actually says that when a cancer patient goes on a bisphosphonate, they should see a dentist first to see if there's anything that needs extractions, et cetera. Do you do that, Rowan? 
We haven't done that, but I think it's a good idea. You know, MD Anderson just reported their big study just about a week ago where they had all the patients from MD Anderson go to one oral surgery practice. And they have the best data now on ONJ. It's 1.2%. It was related to duration of exposure. So maybe that's why we're not seeing an adjuvant because we don't have these long surviving patients that are going beyond two years related with a hazard ratio close to 10 for extractions. So I think the extractions, so I think that's a great idea to send. I just saw that last week. So I think that it's a great idea to have the dentist evaluate somebody before they start to see if they need any extractions. The other thing that was very interesting, there was a technique that you can tie off the roots of a tooth that has to be extracted, and then it comes out, it just dies. After five weeks, you're not doing any trauma, and apparently that's really atraumatic. There's pilot studies of that approach, which might be alternative procedure for patients who need a tooth taken out when they're downstream. So there's a couple potential approaches. Jeff? If the Azure comes out positive... How will you give the Zomata to the patients? Yeah, there'll be a head scratching. It depends on how positive it is. You know, can it beat 35%? That would be great. And it may well be dose and schedule dependent because that's the other point that's important is that we finally saw that there's a difference in potency with the clinical outcome because you saw Charlie Shapiro's study giving zoledronic acid to patients who were premenopausal giving chemotherapy made postmenopausal and zoledronic acid prevented the bone loss. Otherwise, it was 9% bone loss at one year. And then you saw the next presentation was Residrinate in the same context couldn't prevent the bone loss, was completely ineffective, oral residrinate. So basically, we have this signal now that there might be a potency difference in the clinic, which we didn't have before. And there's, what, a SWOG trial now comparing three different bisphosphonates. Or yeah, hazard. and that's the telling thing, isn't it? I mean, if, when you're asking us, what are we doing? What is SWOG doing? SWOG is giving everybody a bisphosphonate, right? And they've been doing it for a year. So they've been giving everybody zoledronic acid, ibandronate, or quadrinate. One of the arms is quadrinate, and NSABP did the fourth quadrinate. So that's a really poor yep. bisphosphonate. I mean, and just keep repeating this. I mean, it's not a surprise you might get some mixed results. But I think we do have this signal now. We've got a really potent bisphosphonate like zoledronic acid. We're seeing this. So I would suspect that the Asia trial will be positive as well.